Well, let me encourage you at home to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. That's going to be the basis of our sermon once again this morning. Last Sunday evening on live stream, we considered the first part of Paul's prayer for his people in Ephesians 3 under two headings, inner strength and deeper roots, seeking God that above everything else, he would strengthen us deep within that we would have a greater concern for our everlasting souls rather than our ever-fading bodies. And secondly, that we would learn how to pray the right prayer, asking God that we would know more and more of his love for us. This morning, I would like us to see what else Paul prays for his church. What were Paul's priorities for the Christian people in Ephesus? First of all, this morning, Notice with me that Paul prays that the Ephesians would have a firmer grasp. Verse 18, a firmer grasp. We read there, And I pray that you may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul prays that God's people would have a firmer grasp on the love of Christ. Paul's desire is that God's people really get what he gives. Let me illustrate this. Brian Chappell, Presbyterian pastor and prolific writer, tells the story of Michael and Grace Wang. They're an American couple of Asian heritage. Michael was called by his company to leave Los Angeles and move to the Middle Eastern state of Qatar in order to help the Qatari authorities with their infrastructure before the 2022 FIFA World Cup. He took with him his wife and their three adopted children. Sadly, on January the 5th, 2013, their eight-year-old adopted daughter with multiple health issues and incredible physical deformities, who was from an underprivileged African background, whom they had given a home, died of unknown causes. Within hours, Michael and Grace were arrested and have been tried and convicted in Qatar. But why are they being held? Well, the first witness at their trial gave us a clue. The witness for the prosecution said, the child that died was black with a plump figure, whilst the parents of her white complexion. When parents adopt, they normally choose beautiful children. Another investigator said at the trial, the adoption process normally involves potential parents seeking out children who are good-looking and well-behaved, never mind looking like or having similar hereditary features to the parents. But in this instance, these children are all from Africa, from poor families, and so it's most likely that they've been brought to this family as some form of child trafficking or to sell their organs illegally to unscrupulous medical researchers. In conclusion at the trial, the judge finding them guilty said, Allah has banned adoption from outside the hereditary background of the parents. In other words, in other words, it is incomprehensible to think that a mother and father would choose to love a child that is so unlike themselves. Why did they do it? Well, maybe the children's names will give you a bit of a clue as to the kind of people Michael and his wife were. The name of the girl who died was called Gloria. Their second child was Josiah. And their third was Emmanuel. You've got it. These folks were Christian people. 
They were adopting these children who were in the greatest need. Children who were not lovely in form or the most beautiful to look at. Children who were impoverished and poor with underlying health issues. They chose these three dear children out of love, not looks or ability, but out of love. They chose those who were not like themselves out of love. And Paul says here in Ephesians, hey, Ephesian friends, that is exactly what has happened to you in Christ. Just read Ephesians 2 again and see our deadness and our unattractiveness. But God, because of his great love for us, made us alive and he's given us a home. God, the determined, committed, and most loving parent, has broken into our world and transformed our lives as he sent his one and only son to make those who were the most deprived and poor and weak with the greatest underlying condition of all, that of sin, in fact, those so unlike God in his holiness, that he has come in love to make us his own and draw us into his family. I know there will be those watching this today from both our congregations of La Comfort and Union Road who know all about Jesus but don't know Jesus. In other words, his love isn't real and personal and dynamic and powerful in their lives. Let me put it another way. There are those today who are sitting at home who, who think they're Christians but don't live day to day with Christ in their hearts and his love in their lives. In other words, they're a little bit like the judge in that Qatari court case, thinking they know whom God should pick as his children, and it's them, because they think they're good enough. But this letter of Paul to the Ephesians reminds us that it's those who recognize not how good they are, but their sinfulness their gutterness, their deadness, who come to see the greatness of the love of Christ. That's what changes everything. But Paul wants the church he loves and the people he serves to grasp, we read it in verse 18, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And you know, that is something to challenge even those of us who have been Christians for many, many years. We can say spontaneously, oh, Christ died for my sins, that he went to the cross for me, that we have been saved, or however we express it. But to what extent have we been grasped by the dimensions of the love of Christ? In our homeschooling this week, we were looking at 3D shapes. Thanks, teachers. That was a straightforward one for us. How many faces or vertices or sides these 3D shapes have. And in shapes like a triangular base prism, you really need to have to look long and hard and high and deep. And we often talk about three dimensions as a shape that is solid and robust. Even in entertainment circles, 3D films are taking us into that more immersive experience of the action as it unfolds on the screen with those glasses on, that we can feel it, we can almost see it and touch it. But here, Paul describes the four dimensions of Christ's love, which shows that this love is completely different from anything we've ever experienced before. This love is incomparable to any other love such as the area, perimeter, volume, scope, size, shape. 
For the more you dig or stretch or pull or investigate all that Jesus has done for us, there's always another layer. There's always another angle to visit. There's always more treasure to mine. Folks, from here to eternity, we are never to be done or missing ourselves in Christ's 4D love. And you see, that's why Paul prays for us to have the power to grasp this love because it's no ordinary love like anything we've experienced. We need his power because it takes time and effort to keep digging into Jesus and his love. There's nothing on earth that can be measured against it. It's in a category all of its own. We actually need to ask power from God himself in order to help us experience the wonderful dimensions of the love of God. And do you not think if we ask God for power to grasp the immensity of his love, would he not give that to us? The less we pray this prayer, the weaker and smaller and less efficient or dramatic or life-changing or eternity-defining we will view Christ and his cross. But the more we pray this prayer, I believe we will be like adopted children who come of age and begin to ask the big questions of their adoptive parents, why did you choose me? Why me? And the answer we find with God is that his love as an eternal father is deeper, wider, higher, longer than we could ever get our minds around. And so he says, I better help you with this. Let me help you get your minds around my love. And so let's stand back and for a few moments this morning take in the dimensions of his love, how wide and long and high and deep that love really is. First of all, Let's think about this love of Christ that is so wide. The love of Christ that is so wide. Uh, why the breadth? Well, as we read the Bible, it's broad enough to draw in all of humanity. Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, carrying all sorts of baggage. Christ's love can draw anyone in. His love is so embracing and all-encompassing. No one is beyond the reach of Christ. Age, race, background mean nothing to God. And this is a huge encouragement to us, for as it appears, love for Christ to the church seems to be maybe in decline in our country at times. We need to be reminded that the church of Jesus Christ stretches into every country and crosses every border and every language barrier. Did you know there are more people who claim to be Christians in the world today than ever before? The church of Jesus Christ stretches farther around this globe than ever. There are people and places today hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that have never heard it before. So today as a Christian, you and I are just one humble member of a mighty multitude that will be so vast, Revelation 5 and 7 tells us, it'll be a number so vast that no one can number. No census could count. How wide is the love of Christ. It encompasses all people from all time and all ages. But secondly, we notice his love stretches deep into eternity past and into the future. His love towards us doesn't just save us from the punishment of our sin in the here and now, but what he has done has lifelong death-defying qualities. Not even the grave will snatch us from his grasp we read in the Scriptures. And way, way before time, the Bible tells us that we rested heavy on his heart. You know, God's love for you did not just spring into action the day you say you were saved. Or on the Friday morning that Jesus hung on the cross, his love for us was there 
from before time began. We've already read about it in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 2. A great preacher of a previous generation, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it like this. He says, this to me is one of the most staggering things of all, that I was known by Christ in eternity. We were known to him and our names were written in his book. What dignity that adds to human life and to our existence in this world to know that he has set his love upon us and that his affections rested upon us even in eternity. That is the beginning, if such a term is possible, of the length of his love towards us before time. And this length is like an unbroken line. It does not stop and it does not start. It is a love that never gives up and a love that never lets go. It is a love that never despairs of us. This is the picture of the love of Christ towards us, his own patient, long-suffering, bearing with us, never giving up on us. And even in our sin, even in our selfish folly, as we turn our backs on him, or have, to use a good Northern Irish word, a good gurn at him at times, his love for us remains the same. He remembers what kind of gutter creatures we are. Hellbound, the Bible tells us. And how much he needs to keep us and do for us, to hold us and to save us. Ephesians 1 tells us that in love he chose us and prepared his family home for us. Oh, what lengths he's gone to. What comfort and consolation and what strength that gives us in times of trial and adversity. If he has set his heart upon you from all eternity and given his son in time and space to rescue us on that cross, do you think he'll give up on you now? Of course not. His name and his reputation depend on it. He is the God he saves. What is it we'll sing at the end of our service today? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And then we see, part C in this, his love goes deep enough to reach the lowest, most degraded sinner. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, in Christ there's hope. No one, no matter how sinful, is written off. In Jesus, there's always a welcome for those who plumb the very depths of life. Don't believe the lie the devil sells the world that you're too bad to come to Christ. You've gone too far to be welcomed back. The love of Christ goes to the very depths. You know, today, if you're carrying the guilt of past or some awful shame that you can't shake or never even dared mention to your husband or wife or another friend, something that weighs you down and makes your life a burdensome worry, an awful moment of shame. Paul says, pray that you would see the sheer depth of his love for you. See how far he went to free you from that fear and the punishment for that sin. That's why Jesus came down and went down to the depths of hell in his suffering and punishment in order to raise us up. All of us who were destined for that place, he now lifts us up high. To his place. And you see what he did? I want you to turn over in your Bibles, even just, it's just a few pages, into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And I'm going to read it slowly and deliberately. And I want you to see the depths that he went to for you and for me. Philippians 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In fact, these are words that reflect Ephesians 3 verse 19, aren't they? For this is a love that surpasses knowledge. That the Son of God did not hold on to his claim and his own rights as the eternal heir of the glories of heaven, but he humbled himself, coming right down into Mary's womb, taking on human flesh, living as a man in a fallen world, suffering at the hands of men, the misunderstanding and hatred and malice and spite, suffering from weariness and hunger and thirst, men mocking him, cursing him, teasing him, spitting at him, stripping him, humiliating him. The moment when he lost sight of the face of his own father, that he had known with such love in all eternity at the cross, when the author of life, the creator of everything, laid low in the grave. Why? The astounding answer is because of the depth of his love for you. For you. And the fourth dimension of his love is just that. It reaches us then to the heights. Whatever struggles we face or pains we feel, heaven is our rock-solid, guaranteed home. That place where all tears will be wiped away and everything will be made new. Every previous pain forgotten. Listen in. Let's, let's eavesdrop for a moment to Jesus sitting in the upper room the night before he dies, looking at Peter, who was about to deny him, seeing Thomas, who would doubt him, and all the others who would run away from him, as he says to God his Father about these terribly flawed men, he prays for them and says in John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom you have given to me will be with me where I am, that they might see and share in your glory. Isn't that incredible? All those who were to run away on account of him, he was to bring near and take to glory because of his love for them. Our Lord's love knows no bounds. His desire for us is that we would be with him. And Ephesians 5 verse 27 tells us how we will all look at that time. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. Would that be great? When those of us within the church family are free from all those things that frustrate and annoy one another, when we let each other down. I long for that day when I will be free from sin. Oh, whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 19 is absolutely right. We now know of a love that is beyond any love we know. It's incredible, isn't it? This love surpasses knowledge. A love so big it outbigs the biggest thing we know to be big in life. And Paul's already had to resort to the word picture of measurement. He's taken us to the miles classroom, hasn't he? The height, length, breadth, and depth of love of Christ. He, he's taken us to 3D shapes and 4D images. But at the same time, here's an irony in the English classroom. Some might call it an oxymoron. We all know what a moron is, don't we? Someone who makes no sense, someone who's a bit of an idiot, whose life and the things he does just don't add up. 
well, here's an oxymoron. It's a statement that just doesn't seem to make sense. And that's what Paul writes, a line that just doesn't seem to make any sense to the reader. For the love that Paul wants us to grasp, do you see it in verse 19? That he wants them to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He wants them to understand something that can't be fully understood. So what on earth is Paul doing? Is he leaving us without any hope of fully understanding or engaging with God's love? No, Paul's not that kind of guy. He is not some super spiritual saint who boasts about what he has and taunts that others can't experience it. Let's think about it for a moment. What is it in our own knowledge that is to be surpassed? What is it that we all know best as human beings? What is our greatest knowledge? Well, the answer is simple, isn't it? We are. Let's be honest with ourselves today. We fill our thoughts with ourselves most of the time. How we're feeling. What's going on with us. We think about ourselves more than anything else. We know our weaknesses, our trials, our sins, our problems, our struggles, our strains. But Paul wants us to know that God surpasses that. That God's love is deeper, wider, higher, longer than whatever that is. Every feeling, every flaw, every sinful error, every disobedience, God's love is bigger than it. It surpasses what troubles you or tempts you or torments you most. God's love is bigger than that. And get this, his love is even bigger than our lack of understanding of that same love. Some of you need to re-listen to that. <laughs> Deeper, longer, higher, wider than we could ever imagine. And I pray with Paul that we would have the same firmer grasp of Christ's love, continually, constantly amazed at what he has done us. And so secondly, and more briefly, as we finish out today, Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus that they might be fully filled. Verse 19, fully filled. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now what does that mean? Staggering as the thought may be, it is a prayer that asks God to fill us full of him. But if we pray the prayer that has just gone before, that in spite of ourselves and our own lacks and our own laziness and weakness and sin, that bit by bit we began to grasp the greatness of the glory of God, something incredible begins to happen in us. If suddenly, or step by step even, the sin that we loved and let's face it, we all love sin, and some sins are special pets that we have in our lives that we struggle to let go of, but rather feed and nurture them in our hearts. But if these sins we love come into contact or are confronted face-to-face -face with the God of love, face-to-face -face with the Father's eternal love, confronted even with the crucified Christ, slowly but surely, the bigness and four-dimensional nature of God's love will surpass that sin. We begin to live in that love and for that love because it surpasses our sin. It even goes beyond the circumstances that we're struggling with or wherever might be the thing that holds us back from fully grasping that love in the first place. Whatever it is you're going through or facing or battling, confront it with Christ 
and his beauty and his glory and the height, length, breadth, and depth of the love of our God. And it will surpass whatever it is you're going through. For when we are filled with that love and increasingly overwhelmed by him, his life, his character, his power would begin to be seen and known in us and through us. English pastor Paul Mallard, whose ministry has been marked with deep personal suffering as he writes about the struggles that his wife has had with very dark and deep episodes of depression, writes beautifully and warmly from his own experience in this passage. He says, I think at the heart of the petition is that we may be satisfied with God, that we would be overwhelmed by the love of God and long to know him more deeply, for that is the greatest purpose of human existence. And Don Carson, one of the senior evangelical statesmen in the global church today, not prone to exaggeration or scandalous language, comments that he believes in Paul's prayer, that Paul is praying that we would get drunk on the love of Christ, that we would be so intoxicated, so high in the love of Christ each day, that it will enable us to say with the psalmist of Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Are you satisfied with God and him alone? Last Saturday in one of the local papers, there was an interview with uh, Shane Todd. He's one of Northern Ireland's best-known stand-up comedians. And if you're into sport, especially the Northern Ireland football team, you'll have seen him and you'll have appreciated him. And in that interview, he was asked about the most stunning place that he'd ever visited. In his reply, he said humorously, Macrofelt and Dubai. But the first time I saw Macrofelt, it really took my breath away. Now, I think he was joking. After all, he is a stand-up comic. Although maybe not, I'll leave you to decide. But it set me thinking about where we live and the environs and the environment in which we live in, and what surrounds us and we throw ourselves into each day, do we really appreciate the setting, the surroundings, the comfort and beauty, physically speaking, around Middlestown? Maybe some of us do. But if we would only take time to look around us and see the beauty of God's magnificent and incomparable love for us in Christ, and begin each day with the dimensions of the Savior's love in which we now live, and actually battle sin and their surpassing knowledge of Christ, replacing our curved-in thoughts always of ourselves with his overwhelming majesty, we would become full of him, and it would take our breath away. Living as we were created to be, sons and daughters of God, made in his image, in his likeness. I wonder if any of you visited the Louvre Museum in Paris. It holds some of the world's most highly celebrated and priceless artifacts from centuries of craftsmanship and art. I mean, if you have seen it, you can barely believe when you see it firsthand how small the Mona Lisa is. I remember nearly missing it. If it wasn't for the crowd around it, I don't think I'd have seen her. Well, I read recently that the curators of the museum did a survey of the tourists who passed through its doors. And it was found that the average tourist takes six seconds to drink in each piece of art. I mean, six seconds, that's nothing. How can you expect to absorb or appreciate anything 
in that kind of time. And it reminds us that we need to take time over those things that are most precious, don't we? We need to spend time on our relationships, our families, a completed piece of work or school assignment or assessment or something we're finishing off for our own workplaces. But how can we expect to be overwhelmed, strengthened, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God unless we ask? But more especially, unless we stop and stare and look and long hard at Jesus. How can we ever learn anything new about him that would satisfy us unless we see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down? Or recognize that what that accomplished for us, that there's no guilt in life, no fear in death. That is the power of Christ in me. You see, there's a direct correlation between how much time we spend contemplating the beauty of Jesus and our experience of his love should then be obvious in our lives. In fact, Paul writes exactly that in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 when he writes, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect upon, in other words, take time to look at the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. In other words, the more time we spend reflecting on the Lord's glory, the more we will reflect the Lord and his glory. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we spend our time with petty things and in fussy activities and discussions. Were we to be full of this love and of the knowledge of this love, we would be entirely transformed. That's the landscape in which we live. This knowledge makes us mighty. That is why Paul prayed that these Ephesians would grasp more firmly the height, length, depth, and breadth of the love of Christ and to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. For with a firmer grasp of his love, we too will be filled more fully to the measure of all the fullness of God. As a certain German Liverpool manager might say, wow, wow. Friends, greater than a Premier League trophy, greater than the beauty of Mid-Ulster on a stunning summer's day, have you grasped the dimensions of his love that surpasses everything else that we think about or give our time to and say, wow. This love is for me.